The Coot Street Podcast is recorded responsibly and in a socially distant manner from Perth, West Australia and Chicago, Illinois. Today, let's face it, the Motel 6 is shot. Nobody else is in the Gershon Room. And today, Gary Wolf and I are going to talk a little bit about what it's like in these strange and difficult times of the great incredible pause. So, hello Gary. How are you, Jonathan? And I'm I'm sorry to to see the deserted facade of the of the motel of the Motel Six in Coon Street. But you know, I've never been in a Motel Six. Have you? I have been I have been in the Motel Six in a small town in southern Missouri, and it is exactly. I no, I should not say this because this is an actual corporation, and they I'm pretty sure don't listen to the Coon Street podcast. But every horror movie you've ever seen that involved a motel. Well, the other thing about it is I don't think you can get high above one. Um, that's true. The, the, I'm not the, quite sure how you'd have a sort of a cocktail lounge, right? Because that's, that's my impression of the Gershwin room. You know, it's like it's a cocktail lounge or bar sort of somewhere, somehow mythically above you know, well, this, of this course, space. it's a fantasy landscape. It's a, it, 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 it's a, it, it's a combination of magic realism and and surrealist fantasy. This is this is what we're about here, isn't it? It's a little bit now that I think of about it, like an edited out sliver of American Gods. Well, one of the things um, that Neil did while he was writing American Gods, and I'm sure he's written about this or talked about it in interviews, was he did a lot of highway travel in the United States. Mm. And while I don't, I don't know that he stayed in, in roadside motels, I strongly suspect he did. Wouldn't um, surprise me. Because I remember talking to him, I think almost the first time I met him was right after he had written that. And I think he had driven from what was then Menominee, Wisconsin, to the conference in Florida and just enjoyed – Every every minute of the way, there was a book uh, by a travel writer named William Least Heat Moon called Blue Highways, and it's a wonderful travel book. Blue Highways are on the old-fashioned maps. I have to explain this to people because I'm, they have not seen paper road maps in decades. <laughs> but on the old road maps, the, the major highways were in red, and the the byways, the state highways, the back roads were in blue. And he wrote a book about traveling across the country on blue highways and it's one of those blue highways a kind of magical uh motel six that has floating above it a penthouse in manhattan somehow <laughs> and that's what i visualized the gershwin room gershwin, gershwin room as that suits me just fine i'm quite happy to be in some penthouse cocktail bar environment you know sip, sipping a manhattan with a friend and having well, a conversation but this is this is a question I have also because you and I have been talking for the last month really with a lot of our friends, uh, and I it, it's interesting that uh, the idea which which is is yours the idea of the ten minute podcast strikes me as being something similar to what was also your idea that is starting the Coot Street podcast altogether. Mm -hmm. You and I were not we were not talking with Charles Brown because well, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Mostly was dead, and that sort of <laughs> discouraged. Well, yes, that, that 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 does generally you know, impinge on the conversation. But I'm sure you've had the same experience that I have. We haven't been to conventions. We haven't been talking to our friends. We haven't been talking to writers who we've either never met or barely met or only corresponded with. So, to some extent, my sense of these short podcasts was: this is bar time. This is as close as we can get to bar time with old pals. Um, I, I think it kind of is. It's it's this sensation of being in contact with people without being in contact with them. Being mm -hmm. in contact, I mean, because it, first of all, I mean, I'm not I'm not there when you record your episodes. And just for, no. so that listeners are clear on how this happens, for this particular group of this series of podcasts, Gary and I do them completely independently, and then they're put out through Cood Street. So. I'm sitting there usually with video, just as I'm looking at you right now, and I'll be talking wow. to one or two people at the same time. And then you're doing them rapidly enough. I mean, some days I've done two or three in a day, sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, day after day. So you're seeing faces and faces and talking to people. So it does feel like a kind of sanity kind of release in terms of the idea of not getting out and not socializing. I mean, here in, in Perth, it's not quite as serious as it is in, in you know, the U.S., 
So, you know, I can still go to my brother's house and sit socially distanced from him right. and have a cup of coffee, right? I'm not locked into the house. That's never happened here in Perth. But even then, there's still that sense of shutdown and everything not running normally. Whereas where you are, of course, it's the opposite. Um, but what, what the, these little windows in, in give you is that feeling of continuity and connection. And I think partly because of the, frankly, crazy pace of them. You know, if you're doing one 10 minute episode every week, mm-hmm. I don't think it would have anything like the same feeling, at least from our perspective. Obviously, we can't tell how it is, how welcome or unwelcome it is for listeners, though we did get a lovely letter the other day thanking us for the, for the 10 minute episodes. Uh, but from, but from my perspective, yeah, it keeps you in. And what's interesting is it, it also like opens this little window into, you know, Julian Redfern and Joe Hill's secret volcano base and how right, they're coping exactly. by reading to one another and how, you know, Stan Robinson is working away on, you know, getting ready for the ministry for the future to come out and how some people are reading the way you'd think. Some people aren't reading, you know, people are dealing with stresses and strains and also how it's evolved over the two months since this all began. Has it been two months already? Wow. It's getting close to that. I mean, we've been recording, we've, rec- we've put out 37 episodes of the 10 minutes every day. Well, I think here's the thing. Uh, and this may be the secret of the Cood Street podcast, which to, to all those who aspire to do what we're doing, uh, <laughs> is that there's no secret at all. We're talking to people we want to talk to. Um, we're actually having conversations that I would love to have. And to some extent, the, the 10 minute podcasts are an excuse to call up old friends and to call up new people that I haven't met. I had a absolutely delightful conversation with, with Liz Williams, who I'd never met. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we had a chance to meet I, uh, once or twice, maybe when world fantasy was in Brighton, but we didn't. And it felt like the kind of thing you feel when you're at the bar at a convention and somebody says to you, here is this writer that you've read since you were 17 yeah, and worshiped yeah. and sitting here and let's, let's have a drink together. Yeah. And it's difficult to recapture that. And it's very difficult to recapture it at a distance, but it nevertheless has that same kind of feeling. And also like barroom conversation, you feel like they're not stuck with you for the next two hours and you're not stuck with them. No, it is. I mean, 10 minutes or well, let's, let's be really honest. It's like about 15 minutes. Well, with with people, unless you're talking to Nettie Akorafor, Gary, in which case it's Ooh. half an hour. Uh, Nettie has a lot to say. <laughs> in a good but, way, but, though, right? In a good okay, way. That's, that's, that's a particular case. Now, that's the other thing. Uh, yes, it's interesting to talk uh, to people that we know slightly, if at all. Nettie, who I've known for a long time, and she lives in the south suburbs of Chicago, and we never talk. We never catch up, partly mm-hmm. because she's so incredibly busy. Uh, and the part that you heard, the part that was recorded, was really a fraction of the conversation we had. <laughs> well, and that's yes. happened in a few of the cases, too. I, I have to say as well, there's some new – well, it's been lovely touching base with people that I've known for a long time, and mm-hmm. that's come through. It's been great having a structure for a, a short conversation so that we can just drop in. And there are people who I've fallen in love with talking to, who I'm desperate to get back to talking to again. Who were exactly. an unexpected joy, you know, so yeah. And I, I've had exactly the same reaction. It's, the interesting thing is, are you finding um, any pattern in people's answers to our questions? We ask them what they're reading. Yeah. We ask them if they have comfort reading. And, uh, and uh, in the case of m- most of them, the parts I found most interesting are what they have coming out, coming yeah. down the pipeline. Look, I, I have noticed real patterns, actually, to be honest. Mm-hmm. The first one I've noticed is... They're, we're almost always talking to working writers, though there's a couple with editors. Right. And those people are reading in one of two clusters of things. They're either re- generally reading research, mm-hmm. uh, and that's particularly true, say, of Kate Elliott. If you were to listen to that episode, she's talking about uh, she's got this book that's a gender-swapped Alexander the Great in space, Right. Sounds terrific. And there's a, and actually Taws, um, and there's a lot of Alexander the Great research in her work and some, and Second World War research. Mm. And that's reflected in her reading. There's also a lot of, let's not say comfort reading, because that's a, a, a tricky kind of a thing in some ways, but certainly there's a lot of rereading. There's that feeling like you're 
interest in processing new things for for a, a chunk of people is flattening out, and uh-huh. there is a pleasure in dealing with something known and structured. So I see that in what people are reading. What's interesting about just, the record? Sorry, yeah. Go no, go ahead and finish. I was say, what's interesting about what they're recommending though is how they break down between a, a, a slight element of personal improvement recommendations, of which there are a few. You know, like you should read this, you should read that, uh-huh. uh, and the exhortation to just ignore the entire question and read what you feel like, read what will make you feel feel okay in this kind of strange and difficult time. And this is a kind of. Uh more or less a suggestion, advice, wisdom I've gotten from a number of people we've talked to, which is whatever makes you comfortable, uh, graphic novels, old detective novels that you've uh, enjoyed in the past. What I did not uh, encounter was what I've encountered all over uh, the web. When when, when you you look at Twitter and you look at Facebook and the number of people who say, now I'm going to sit down and I'm going to finish Nicholas Nickleby, which I started in high school, and I'm going to improve myself. Uh, none of the people we talk to are actually setting out to do that at all. Uh, no, that not, I really. not if, not if they didn't already. I mean, the poster boy in my mind for this particular side of things is Christopher Rowe, who mm-hmm. rereads Proust every second year. Right. Okay. That's Christopher. Congratulations, Christopher. You're <laughs> but, not but going to form, no, you're not fairness, form a though, Hang on though. In fairness, that's not a self-improvement thing. It's just what the rest of us feel about as being a self-improvement thing because it's what he would read anyway. I can understand that. And I, I find myself, uh, wanting to, uh, wanting to read things, not Proust. I mean, for my Proust would probably be William Faulkner. Yeah. who I just went through a period of being absolutely in love with. Every time I go back and look at Faulkner, it's still there. I haven't done that, uh, and uh, I don't know if I will or not. But I think you're right. I think the idea of um, reading something that you find comfortable to return to, one of the things that has come up uh, in a couple of discussions, because, uh, well, one discussion obviously with Lavi Tidar, who's doing a, an Arthurian thing, Turns out a lot of people have favorite Arthurian books, and it may be ones they grew up with. Uh, it may be um, something like uh, Mary Stewart's The Crystal Cave. It may be um, Marion Zimmer Bradley's um, novels. But for me and a couple of other people, it was T.H. White's The Once and Future King, which I was reminded by uh, a couple of people. Not, I think Lavi had read that, but I, I, I don't know that uh, – he was one of the ones who thought it was a formative thing. That was a very ironic kind of humorous take on the Arthurian legend, which now has become ossified because yeah. it became the basis of a Broadway musical and a Disney movie and all this sort of thing. Um, but I think, I, I think there is a difference between uh, what I came to think of as Corona guilt reading, uh, where you feel like you need to read something that's good for you, yeah. and, and, and Corona returning to your favorite foods. <laughs> See, the other thing that I've noticed in the background of these episodes as the time has gone on is I think a grow, a growing deep awareness of how uncertain the coming year is. You know, I, I think if you go back to the beginning of the, first of all, before the actual shutdown and then as you roll into the beginning of it and then we start recording episodes at that point, there was a feeling like this still could possibly be some kind of glancing blow almost. Mm. And now there's this idea of, well, if my book even gets printed, you know, and if there's a store to sell it in because right. I, I structurally don't know, you know, I'm finding here in Perth I routinely order books and have them shipped to me that the normal mail isn't delivering parcels anymore or doesn't seem to be. I know. In, in, in the States, it's even in danger of running out of money entirely. Yep. And so it's largely it, because the aircraft aren't flying as much. Well, there, there aren't people in, in, in warehouses actually physically packing up books to ship them out. Yeah. Um, there are all kinds of problems. I was uh, the, the daughter of a good friend of mine and a good friend of this podcast. I'm, I'm going to put in the plug for a non-science fiction book here. But Peter Straub's daughter, Emma Straub, has a two-page feature about her new novel in this week's Time magazine. She's The novel is excerpted in Oprah's. She's got everything going for this novel 
that that and yet it's coming out now. It's coming out, yeah. I think, day day after tomorrow officially. And in addition to having a new novel coming out in in this, uh, Emma owns and her husband Mike own a bookstore in Brooklyn. Yeah, uh, books are magic. So they're getting all ends of this as booksellers. They they are doing. I think they're doing curbside service and mail order service. But by and large, it's like okay, here is your chance at, an, at another bestseller. She's been on the bestseller list before. And it's happening at a time when your bookstore is under stress. You're under stress. You've got kids at home. You're doing homeschooling. Everything is happening at once. And something that ought to be, you know, the great celebration of the year is let's hope we can get through this next week. That's true. The other thing I've, I've seen in the background is there are various things that impact on creative productivity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Again, early in this process, a lot of people were saying things like, well, I've always been shut in, so this doesn't make much difference. Right. However, the difference it is clearly making is that they're shut in now with somebody, you know. So when I was talking to Kelly Barnhill the other day, mm-hmm. she was, I mean, very happy, but, and she, but she was there with her, I think her two teenagers from high school and her kid mm-hmm. who's back from uh, college. And there was that feeling of, they're great. I love them. They're here all the time. That's exactly. <laughs> and 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 the other the other difference I've seen, and I can't remember who it was that pointed this out. I mean, obviously, a lot of writers spend a lot of their time shut in. I mean, well, Michael Swanwick said that when I was talking to him. Um, but choosing to spend your time as a shut in, to choosing to spend your time apart from other people, is the same is not the same thing as being required to do it. True. It's and, very to some different, extent, yes. and to some extent, the eccentricity points you get from being a recluse or a hermit. Yeah. And, and Mary Rickert describes herself cheerfully as a hermit. Mm-hmm. Uh, she lives in a small town in Wisconsin. The fact is, though, that if everybody's a hermit, you don't get any points for being a hermit anymore. That's very true. That's very true indeed. I was also thinking, you know, sort of. It's going to be, well, it's going to be interesting to seeing what kind of creative endeavors come out of this. People in the performing arts have done you know, a whole bunch of things, yeah. largely because they have time on their hands. Um, people who write their uh, productivity arc from the idea through to appearing tends to be slower. Even if you're writing a short story that appears online, it's going to take some months if you're going to write a novel, it's going to take a year or two. So right. it'll be interesting to look at the books that are published after July or August of next year, maybe, or beyond to see where this begins to impact on people. It's one of the questions that I've seen uh, discussed a little bit because uh, the, the question came up, obviously, after uh, 9-11. How, how long would it take before we started seeing uh, novels like Jonathan Safran Froer's Up? close and incredibly loud or whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so you, you started getting some um, some sort of mainstream uh, novels with the setting of, of the Twin Towers and the, the dealing with terrorism, sort of as a background issue. None of them, I think, really became classics, and I think that trend lasted a fairly short amount of time. Yeah. My, guess, my guess is that the writers I've talked to, none of them are trying to – as far as I know, consciously thinking about trying to write about this period of lockdown. And if anything, a number of them are fleeing in the opposite direction. They want to write something which is as far away from this as they can get. Well, that's what I got from Charlie Strauss, who is now writing far future space opera again, because at least it's far away from this, you know, one thing that I'm one writer, of course, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry. Finish. No, what you saying? So you go ahead. I was going to say uh, the the one writer who uh, can't escape this, unfortunately, is Stan Robinson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was thinking not only because so much of what went on in the Science and the Capital trilogy uh, that, I mean, it, that was not a, a, a pandemic novel. His pandemic novel is The Years of Rice and yeah. Salt, which we talked about. Which, but also I, I, I was thinking uh, at this part of the chat after we recorded. That even Aurora, which is not a pandemic, it is. It's a novel about being confined in a space that you can't get out of. It is and, a novel about the greatest theme, now that I think about it, that Kim Stanley Robinson has. 
and it's a paraphrase of something someone said, a woman said in a nursing home somewhere the other day in a newspaper, and it's that we're a community, not an economy. Exactly, yeah. That is the greatest theme of Kim Stanley Robinson's work. Um, it's the greatest argument, I suppose, of Kim Stanley Robinson's yeah. work. I'm not sure I describe it as a theme, but the, uh, the, but but yes, I mean, it certainly is something that he's talked about again and, and again and again. Everything comes down to, rash, to reason as a means of survival. It sounds like the simplest, most basic enlightenment idea that you could come up with. And it's been an idea which you could argue that science fiction has championed since the beginning, or at least since it became actual science fiction. That is, reason can govern uh, behavior. True. One of the differences, though, with certainly with, say, Aurora, right, is Mm -hmm. uh, I think that science fiction and uh, places like NASA, but science fiction, have arguably peddled a rather toxic idea. That has persisted through till to this day, which is that we can go somewhere else. This is somehow a disposable right. world that we live right. in, and we'll just go to the next one because, you know, that's what you do, right? And Aurora, more than anything else, and it's a book I deeply love, right? Absolutely fundamental to my, my feelings about science fiction in the 21st century. I love it because it says, no, we're all together in this lifeboat and there is no other lifeboat. We have to patch this and we all have to bail together. And that's, that's true. Also, and there, sorry, what you say? There, there's a sub theme in that too, which occurred to me, um, uh, that is very much with us now. And one of the things that goes wrong with this generation ship, uh, as Ooh. he points out, as one of his characters points out, is that bacteria and viruses evolve much more quickly than we do. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, Hundreds and thousands of generations of these things uh, are going to get ahead of where we are. And to some extent, that's happening, you know, even in the environment we have to live in now. Stan has an essay, which I know you've read, that's in The New Yorker. And if I recall, Mm -hmm. remember to, I'll put it in the show notes. One of a couple, he just did one at Bloomberg Green as well this week. But the one in The New Yorker, you know, he he talks about how what's happening now, the beginning of 20, the first half of 2021 is, or 2020 is really the opening salvo of everything that's going to go wrong, right? And so it's so. like you need to be preparing. This is the thing you learn from now. So it's like all the stuff you're putting in place to deal with coronavirus, for example, mm-hmm. is the stuff you're going to need to maintain and commit to so that when the next pandemic comes down the pipeline in five or ten years, potentially, you're ready for it. The The way of thinking, the way of coping as a group, that all comes down the pipeline in 10 or 20 years when the next thing happens or in 12 months. I mean, lest we forget, as we've said before here on the podcast, Gary, here we are. It's where I am now. It's the 3rd of May. Where you are, it's the 2nd of May. Mm-hmm. Back on the 1st of January, we were all looking at wildfires on the east coast of Australia going, oh, my God, that's the end of time. That's incredible. Look at that thing over there. And then we were looking at floods in, West, in, in on the east coast of Australia. And then we were looking at, you know, and now there's the whole world in this thing. And surely we're sitting there going, this is this is kind of a pattern. And the only way we're going to make it work is that we all work together. Well, one of the things that uh, also came up in my conversation with Stan is that, yes, we're going to have – you're going to have the wildfires in Australia again. You're going to have the wildfires in California. You're going to have the hurricanes. You're going to have – all the horrible stuff that happened last year is going to happen again on top of a pandemic. Yes. Uh, So so you you end up with uh, things just – sort of piling on top of each other, as our podcast friend James Bradley has pointed out now in two consecutive novels. (laughs) But the question then, does this make science fiction more relevant, more important than ever, or does it make it something that more and more readers would like to avoid because of what it tells them? Huh. That's an interesting question. I'm tempted to say neither, I'm tempted to say that it'll be part of how people think about the world. I, science, I mean, we've always known science fiction's never been about the future. It's about now and how we'll deal with it. So it's, I think science fiction's important, is more important than ever. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe because it's a way of, in some of it, not all of it, in some of it of creating laboratory bubbles of ideas to see 
how we might cope with the future we're going to be encountering. How we might cope with it or how we might fail to cope with it. Yeah. I think that's the other thing that but, comes but up. But then every we? failure to cope with it is just simply a mirror image of showing you how you could have coped with it. Mm. Well, one of the things that's an uh, interesting misunderstanding, I've been actually wanting to call Stan back about this. Um, at the beginning of the short thing, he was he's reading the new Hillary Mantel novel, the third uh, Thomas Cromwell novel, which is called The Mirror and the Light. And I Not misunderstood. And I, no, it's The Mirror and the Light. I know. You heard that, right. Okay, but here's the thing. He corrected me. He recognized immediately that I was an old English major. One of the classic studies of English romanticism was a book by M.H. Abrams, who was one of the great critics of the early half of the 20th century, and it's called The Mirror and the Lamp. And it's a very important pair of metaphors that has nothing to do with science fiction until I make it so. He, he, he viewed There are two views of poetry. One view of poetry that he describes in this was it's a reflection of society. It is a mirror. It is designed to show us what life is like, to to allow us to see the details of life, to allow us to perceive the world as it really is. The other view of poetry, the visionary, romantic, byronic idea, is that no, it's a lamp to show us what the future might be or what the world might be. Or And I remember thinking uh, when I first read that book, and I did read it, and obviously Stan did too because he was another <laughs> Englishman. Remember, Stan has a PhD in English also. Um, I remember misreading this thinking, this could be used as a way of describing the difference between mimetic fiction and science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, mimetic fiction has always, in, 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 in workshops, in MFA programs, in critical essays, in the classic canon making of Harold Bloom and others, been a reflection of the world as it is. And the argument against that is that when you start dealing with issues like climate change, like pandemics, by the time you're reflecting the world as it is, it's too late to be writing about it. You need to be writing about this stuff in advance. I think so. I mean, not having read The Mirror and the Lamp or The Mirror and the Light. Keep in mind, this is a complete misreading on my part of The Mirror and the Lamp. Which is fine. We'll go with the Gary Wolf reading for a second, right? (laughs) I kind of feel like the best science fiction that I read is both. It is the mirror and the lamp. You know, it is shining, if you like, it's shining the lamp on a mirror in the future to give a reflection weirdly of the present, if that makes sense. It's like, it's a thing where you're going, by by shining the, the, the lamp on the future, I see and learn more about today. I see the a mirror of our world. And I realize that doesn't necessarily happen in a far future space opera. It doesn't necessarily happen, though it's in the background, maybe, of a Gideon the Ninth or something like that. But when you read a Paul McCauley, when you read a Dave Hutchison, when you read a Stan Robinson or Gwyneth mm-hmm. Jones, they're there in that. There is that integrated connection with now and and this sort of thought experiment in the future and what it says about now. I, yeah. And and I, I, I think you're right that the, the the mirror aspect is is not lost in science fiction, and it's not lost in those parts of science fiction that maybe in the far distant future you mentioned uh, what Charles Strauss is writing now, and for that matter, the mirror aspect can exist in fantasy. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of sort of tough-minded fantasy with uh, extremely well, let me just extremely stupid politicians running things. Um, which is which is clearly reflection. So you can you can write fantasy that reflects current politics. Oh, absolutely, of course you can. Right. Yes. Uh, the thing that the thing that science fiction does that fantasy doesn't, arguably, is to look at where this politics can lead in the real world. Mm. And I think the other thing to say is, and it's important because sometimes it sounds like we're advocating for morally worthwhile fiction that lectures at you, right? Uh, when this is done well, it's tremendously entertaining as well. Um, I, I yeah, I agree. Uh, and, and and the lectures, I, I I tend to think that Victorian fiction, for example, which set out to be lectures. I mean, Dickens wrote novels about the the criminal justice system and the education system and and this sort of thing. Uh, those those kind of didactic novels actually can still be pretty effective when you see them. But I don't think you need to do that in science fiction. I, I, I think science fiction 
to be to use the old cliche of uh, of, of uh, writing workshops shows rather than tells. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably true. It's an interesting, strange time, and it's going to be interesting to see what comes next, both in terms of science fiction, I mean, which is to some degree set in stone. Like the next twelve months of science fiction is set in stone, right? Uh, they they are to some extent. Uh, I, I guess what I'm thinking, and I'm trying to look at. Uh, I was, I was trying to look back at uh, previous eras where something like this had happened, and and I kept thinking, well, there aren't any. I mean, in in, in my lifetime, in, in the 20th century, nothing quite like this has happened. But if you look at science fiction and uh, and Hollywood film, which is the other fantasy factory during the Great Depression, which may be something economically similar to what we're in for now, um, there were. Monster stories that were uh, the American science fiction during the 1930s, for example, were movies like The Invisible Man and The Wolfman and Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman and Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula and so forth and so on. And occasional movies like Things to Come that were wildly uh, utopian. I Um, was reading a very interesting piece in The Atlantic just yesterday. mm -hmm. It was uh, written by a researcher who had been reading a letter that had been written a while ago by a young Native American woman who was working as a nurse. Mm-hmm. And it was all about the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. And it was interesting, partly because it talked about the perspective of it through this letter, but uh-huh. even more interesting to think about a, a, a thing where a hundred years ago, a thing happened where tens of millions of people died. And we all mostly forgot about it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It, it you know, was one everybody's of the things, going, we will never forget the pandemic. And you're going, we did before. We we, we just did. In terms we did, of historical terms, I mean, we just it, did. It, so what are you going to make change is the question, if, if that's true. That's, a, that's an excellent question. I mean, having grown up in the States and having gone to American schools, uh, basically you got a bunch of stuff about World War one. What the World down? War One ended in 1918. See, what happened and was, Gary, to interrupt, sorry, what happened mm-hmm. was this, right? It was like a greatest hits record, and there was uh, the, the the first half of the 20th century, and it got left off the greatest hits because there were just bigger hits to fit in, right? So exactly a, a passing it. epidemic where 40 million people died was was a less immediately dramatic than the, ninth, than the First World War and the Second World War and the Great Depression, even though I mean, imagine living through that. Imagine being, you know, living through from 1915 to 1945. 30 years, right? So imagine right. between 1990 and 2020, you had the First World War, you had the Spanish flu, you had the Great Depression and the Second World War. You wouldn't be able to find yourself. No, exactly. It's it just absolutely that's that's I guess you're, that's a very good way of looking at it. You've got a kind of science fictional scenario there that I don't think anybody could have imagined at all. But I think the other thing that uh, we may be learning from this, or we may not be learning from this, is that one of the reasons the the, the great 1918 pandemic didn't get erased from history, but certainly didn't get stressed in history, is it doesn't follow anybody's heroic narrative of their own nation. It, it doesn't I mean American history was basically we helped win World War One. We didn't help that much, but we helped some. Um, and then after that, there was the Roaring Twenties, and the, the prohibition and gangsters are so much cooler than people dying of a disease. Um, and and then you get the Depression. Uh, there there was a fascinating book, and uh, it, it's one that I think should be rewritten now. But there was a book by a writer named Francis Fitzgerald, who was a New Yorker reporter which was a history of American history textbooks. And it's interesting because I'm certain you could do the same thing in England, in Australia, in any other country. Uh, her point was that uh, the first generation of American history textbooks were almost science fiction textbooks. It was the Western frontier. It was constantly expanding, moving beyond, finding new lands, uh, killing Native Americans. And when that was done, uh, the next group of heroes became the capitalists. And she actually defends this, by, supports this with looking at actual textbooks taught in secondary schools in the 1890s to 1910s. The heroes became 
the steel magnets, the oil magnets, the people who made huge amounts of money because so now the the frontier hero is replaced by the capitalist hero. And the capitalist hero myth explodes with the 1929 stock market crash. And then you've got the common man as hero. Yeah. You get Frank Capra movies. You get the small guy, the, the little farmer. And, and, and every and then, of course, World War II comes along and it's the American soldier as hero. And then World War II is over. And in the early 1950s, mid-1950s, it's the anti-communist FBI uh, uh, sort of uh, G-men as hero. And eventually that's replaced, I think, by the time she'd written the book, the astronaut hero was becoming the new thing. But I, th I think our point was exactly the same thing. We rewrite our history according to what we're concerned about at the moment. Um, and what we're going to be concerned about after this, I think, is anybody's guess. I think that's I don't think true. We're, I, don't, I don't have enough faith in, um, in in my country or in my government to think that we're going to be really better prepared for the next one. Don't you think, at least in the West, that is the biggest cultural shift of all? Uh, that I hope. I, well, no, no. That, that in nineteen sixty or seventy or eighty, you would expect the United States to lead you out of this. Yeah, no one expects that anymore. No one expects that at all. No, you know, and uh, least least of all those of those of here in the states. Um, but I think that in terms of. What I'd like to think, and this goes back to what I was saying to Stan Robinson, what I would like to think is that we have, for the first time, most of the world doing something which is rational, doing something on the basis of scientific evidence and statistical projections. Mathematics is ruling the behavior of most of the people on Earth now. That may have never happened before. <laughs> and if that, if that continues into the future, more power to it. My concern is that the respect for math and science may just disappear once the problem disappears. There's a lot of ingrained thinking that will need to change for the kind of thing to come about that you hope would come about, which is mm. that we would build on this. Yeah. It depends where you are in the world too. You know, I mean, you could well argue that China and it's the way it culturally looks at the world is better prepared. You know, in the sense that it has a, a sense of community obeying the needs of the greater good more than the, the needs of the individual, right? That has its own issues. I'm not saying mm -hmm. it doesn't. But at least when it comes to we need collective uh, 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 you know, action, well, then you have a framework for that happening. So there is this need to, you know, to turn around from the idea that government is, is, is the enemy somehow. And realize that the government is the tool that would allow you to do the things that would allow for things to be good. That we need to invest collectively. All this kind of stuff. And without necessarily subjugating or losing the individual, but rebalancing a bit, you know. We, we've, we live in this strangely unbalanced world. And that needs to change. And that that's comes through, obviously, as we've said over and over again in the work of Stan Robinson, in other work. It comes through in science, the best science fiction of the moment. And what people are saying about it. And what we're getting in the podcast as well. I think it's true, and I think that one of the most venal and destructive statements made by any American president is quoted all the time, even now, which is when Ron, uh, Ronald Reagan said government, is, government isn't the solution to the problem, government is the problem. And, and he, re he referred back to uh, Thomas Jefferson saying that government is best which governs least, which – for 1790 was fine, uh, but, but, but by and large, I think you're right. There, there is a myth about what governments can and can't do. And I think to some extent, uh, people are looking not at China. People in the United States are not necessarily looking at China uh, shutting down Wuhan as being absolutely the, – the, 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 the views we got on American television were people literally being nailed into their houses to keep from going outside. But at the same time, we're looking at, let's say, New Zealand. Um, we're looking at Taiwan. We're looking at places that, uh, as far as I can tell, New Zealand has essentially solved the problem at this point. Yes. I mean, we have to be rational about New Zealand and allow that it's a small, isolated location with a very few people there. So that is a practical thing. But it is interesting. I mean, you're right. Because, no, I wouldn't set up China as an, an exemplar. And New Zealand strikes me as a much better ch example because there is a situation where – Rather than 
enforcing a solution, government, which is the government, as you would think Americans would know, of the people, by the people, right? We've heard that before, right? Right. Yeah, we've heard that. You've heard that, right? So they, they are agreeing that they need to do this for the greater good of all. And that's what needs to happen. This is what makes the, frankly, lunatic fringe that we see everywhere arguing against things like social distancing and shutting down. That makes them the lunatic fringe they are. They're a little tiny sort of pattern of pond scum on top of society, that kind of attitude. So it's getting that kind of sense that you see in New Zealand and, and a few other places. And also acknowledging that whether or not Jacinda Ardern is the greatest leader of all time, which, I mean, she's not. She's great, but she's not that. No. Her style of leadership suits the time. You know, I it, think that's that's that, that's true. I think it's true of Angela Merkel. It's true of a lot of leaders. Um, I think one of the things that we're seeing in the United States is a sense that history has now out, outpaced our government. It has outpaced a good portion of the basic philosophy that a, a large fragment of our government believes in, and that's going to change. I mean, to some extent. Uh, we are not going to be out of this by the time of our elections in the fall in the United States. In fact, if anything, we'll probably be in the middle of the second wave. Um, and there's a point at which um, people have to begin to believe that uh, the solution to the problem is, is, is it's not something that's going to happen in one or two days. The other thing I've been fascinated by, there was a um, – a uh, classic Ken Burns documentary about the Great Depression. And two or three years into the Great Depression, you realize this is not going to get better tomorrow. This is going to take massive government action. It's going to take um, a massive social change. And it led to a system that leads, for example, to my retirement payments now yeah. from Social yeah. Security. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so that's the kind of transformative change that could come out of this, and it would be great if it does. It, uh, look, I want to be optimistic, and I'm not saying that I'm not, but I want to be optimistic. Mm. I want to look and say, here is an opportunity to reset uh, how we look at the world, how to, to come up with a new sense of feeling about about the world, to to, to turn away from uh, n- you know, neoliberal economics, to talk to, to to turn away from social inequality and income inequality and all these kind of things mm. and move into a situation where we are supporting our communities building up in the United States. I mean, uh, 12 months ago, the green new deal was being ridiculed, particularly yeah. from the, you know, from the conservative side of politics. It didn't look ridiculous then. And it really doesn't look ridiculous now that, I mean, one of the most attractive ideas, I know you, you're yet to read the book, but uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, who obviously is the theme of the podcast, Kim Stanley Robinson <laughs> in the Ministry for the Future and in his article on Bloomberg Green talks right. about ways to take the very, very efficient engine of capitalism and turn it from producing income for a small number of people to investing in the health of the global um, biosphere, Right. And if you can do that, if you can turn that very powerful engine into one building the world rather than tearing it apart for the benefit of few, then you have something immensely powerful on your side. And that seems to me, I mean, that's the Green New Deal's core thing. So that seems to me something I, I, to be looking for as we go forward. No, I, I, I think it's true. On the other hand, on the other hand, that's an argument that Stan has been making. Well, I was going to say since the Science and the Capital trilogy, but really going all the way back to the Three Californias yeah. trilogy, recently reissued in a single 884-page book, which by the standards of some people is barely a novel. But uh, <laughs> And also, not not shipped to anywhere near you. Like, I don't want an e-book right. area. I'd buy yeah. one, but I don't want an e-book. Uh, no, I actually have a copy of that over there. Yeah, and I, I, mean, I mean to reread it sometime soon. <laughs> But 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 I, I, you're absolutely right. It's a point he's been making. It's a point based on reason, based on rationality. One of the interesting things about um, Stan Robinson, who, who we will be talking to sometime this fall when the, uh, the the Ministry for the Future comes out, is and I take some pride in this. He reminded me of it when we were chatting the other day. He's one of these science fiction writers who thinks very very rationally. 
but he was an English major in college. <laughs> and I always, I mean, th there is something to be said for the division between people who are trained as physicists and astronomers, some of whom are very close friends, and people who are trained in the literary arts and sort of learned um, the science as they went along. Greg Bear was an English major, for example. Uh, Stan Robinson did his doctoral dissertation on, on Philip K. Dick. Um, as a PhD in English, I just take pride in the fact that some of the most progressive science fiction writers didn't start out in physics. They started out by learning how to read and understand things really well. Yeah. Hey, look, let's all, let, let, let's all admit it that at least from your perspective and mine, because we're the only all in the conversation, we're yeah. ready for a, a post Trump podcast. Oh, we are so ready for that. Uh, and as, as 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 many people are saying here now, it doesn't make any difference who it is. The the thing that I think um, surprises science fiction writers, looking back on the last four years, apart apart from what happened with the pandemic, which is almost like the, the, the pandemic coming at the near end of Donald Trump's first term. And a novel wouldn't work out at all. It would look like a complete deus ex machina. It would look like, okay, you're, you, you suddenly got a meteor striking your Martian colony just in order to end the novel. Um, but in fact, very few writers saw anything quite like um, Trump or Bolsonaro in, in, in Brazil. I mean, it's, it's, it's not just Trump. Uh, and again, I was talking to Stan about this. His, his nightmare presidency in the first volume of um, the Science, Science of the Capital Trilogy, 40 Signs of Rain, was a Reagan kind of president. Yeah. I mean, his, th his thinking at that point, as most of our thinking was, that's about as bad as it's going to get in terms of presidents who ignore science, who are based on... Um, and that, now that's sort of good old days. Those were the good old days now. You know, it turns <laughs> out those people seemed more science-based than, uh, than anything we could imagine right now. It's so, very, so, very, yeah. very true. I, I, in order to find the kind of thing we're experiencing now, you have to go back to things like um, uh, Sinclair Lewis's "It Can't Happen Here" from 1935 or so. Um, so, so yeah, that kind of thing is is different. I think our way of imagining what can go wrong in the future has been radically revised downward. Yeah. Uh, the, the utopian impulse. Uh, on the other hand, the other side of that is. It's so easy to write dystopias now that why bother? Maybe. I mean, I will say this as well, because it doesn't quite engage what you're saying, but still. Uh, oh. One thing I take away from the 36, 37 episodes of 10 Minutes With at the moment uh -huh. is that there are some people who I think are fairly serious thinkers, from Stan Robinson and Cory Doctor mm -hmm. and Charlie Stroth to Gwyneth Jones and others, but you know, who do see the potential for optimism in our circumstance mm -hmm. that if you, ch you know, like things could turn out well, still we could use this as a reset. This could be a time for a change of thought and feeling is what we've been talking about. Uh, and that w is showing up in science fiction and will, I mean, Cory Doctorow is writing a utopian novel, which is not mm -hmm. something I would have anticipated happening in the world. So I'm going to be quite interested to see that. And it is that sense of a practical utopian. I mean, Right now, we are interested in practical utopias. The Ministry for the Future, when you read it, you will find is very blackly a practical utopia. Hmm. Um, that's what we need. And I think there's that sort of change in feeling. So it's a very interesting time and not one that we could have remotely anticipated 10 years ago when almost to the day we started doing this. We're about that's five true. days off 10 years. That's wow! That's kind of amazing when you think about it. And we've also managed to cheat terribly. We should, go back, we should go back and and somebody. Um, I, I keep thinking because I'm not involved officially in academia anymore. Some doctoral students should go back and mine our podcast and find out because we talked to so many people. What were people thinking about utopia versus dystopia when we started this ten years ago? Dystopia hadn't become a cliche quite. It hadn't become a mainstream thing. Now it's completely – it's a word that everybody throws out about every novel that has anything – basically anything in the future. Um, utopian fiction 10 years ago would have been thought of 
that's the sort of thing that, you know, Edward Bellamy wrote a hundred years ago or H.G. Wells wrote when he got old and cranky, but nobody really writes utopian fiction anymore. And yet um, there was, uh, there were always elements of it in, in, in Kim Stanley Robinson. But to, but now we're talking about, you're talking about major writers who are not romantics by any stretch of the imagination looking at utopian themes. Well, we've certainly found out, at least in terms of art, that being a stinking surrender monkey doesn't help. You know, I think that's true. You, you know, it's like, how are we going to live in this world? And nobody wants to live in the world of Blade Runner, even if it, you know, the timeline's different. No one wants to live in, in some bleak dystopia for all that you may want to write about it, right? That's not right. attractive. The, the cyberpunk future is not an attractive future. So then it's like, well, okay, well, what is? And then what is a, what is a practical utopia? What does it really mean? Uh, you know, well, that, that's, yeah. the most seductive, one of the most seductive things in fiction that I've read, almost period, was Stan Robinson's Pacific Edge, a book that I circle and circle and circle mm -hmm. because there was this practical utopia and what was it all about? Organizing a local community, dealing with some water rights struggles, playing baseball. That you know, Utopia was everybody being reasonably happy. Well, and but it also was, was localized and it's one of the mm. things that you see to some extent uh, in, in novels that aren't sometimes thought as utopian novels, I'm thinking of, uh, of, of Le Guin's Always Coming Home, uh, which is kind of her uh, manageable uh, society uh, of the far future. And a lot of it comes back to uh, the kind of thing, a book I've not read by a colleague of ours on Locus, Adrian Martini's book about local politics, whose title I don't remember. Uh, but a shout out to Adrian. She's even gotten uh, an endorsement from... Michelle Obama for that book, I believe. Something like that, yes. But the point is that all politics begins locally. All organization begins locally, and that's how things work from the ground up. And that's essentially the argument that um, that, that all of the most um, rational utopias have been. They've, they've not been – I mean one of the things that, that Wells had working against him and things to come at the end of that movie when – Aviators take over the world. The airmen, the cult of the airmen, airmen have cool leather uniforms, no doubt about that. Um, and they're going to force the world to um, conform to, to science. That was a crabby, cranky, elderly H.G. Wells writing. Mm. It wasn't the young Wells who really thought what the future might be like. Yeah. And now I think you've got, you, you've got a kind of resurrection of the idea that you know life can be better. And so much of science fiction and increasingly mainstream fiction and what they call, quote, dystopian fiction that's somewhere in, you know, the Station Eleven genre, I think of it now, has been, look at all the horrible ways the world can go wrong. And why do we have to do that? Well, horror stories are probably more popular than, what, feel-good comedies? Maybe, maybe, yeah. By the way, the Adrian, Adrian's book is Somebody's Gotta Do It, Why Cursing at the News Won't Save the Nation, But Your Name on a Local Ballot Can. That's exactly the kind of point we're making. We, <laughs> everybody should go read And Adrian is also, by the way, an excellent reviewer and a uh, very yes. smart person. So. And, and someone who writes for Locus. And mm -hmm. I'm now going to insert a brief advertisement for Locus here and say, if you've enjoyed – Gary and I work for Locus. If you've enjoyed Locus, read Locus – valued its news, interviews, coverage. These are difficult times for everybody, and they're particularly difficult for Locus. So if you can, do consider going to locusmag.com slash donate and making a tax-deductible donation, or going to locusmag.com slash subscribe and signing up and buying a single issue, buying a six-month subscription, buy a year-long one, give one to a friend. You if know? you go to the Locus website ever for anything, think about just sending – if you don't want to subscribe, send them $5. That would make a huge difference if everybody who did that because one of the things that's happening, not only with the closing down of independent bookstores, but the decision by a book chain like Barnes & Noble to suspend magazine sales Yes. Uh, for the not – maybe indefinite future. They, they call it a suspension. Things like that affect all magazines. So, yes, Locus depends partly on magazine sales, on bookstore sales, on uh, 
retail sales, they're not there anymore. Yeah. And, and just and, to put it in perspective for everyone who, who tends to think that an institution that's been around for a long time and Locus been around for half a century is impervious. Well, first of all, Locus, which used to be run out of somebody's home and now is run out of an office is now being run out of homes again. Mm-hmm. Um, lost half of its, uh, distribution overnight. Yeah. You know, and income has been driven away. So if you can, and if you can't, don't, you're like, don't feel bad right now if you're somebody who's in a position who has to look after a hand to mouth existence and everything and just can't support and do things. That's okay. But if you can consider donating, giving, supporting, and if you can't, you know, if you can't, give and please don't if you're not if it's not something that's easy for you to do what you could do is tell somebody else yeah. share some of your attention that would be enough of a don- donation and be welcome i will say as well gary as, as we get to the 55 minute oh. mark of our 60 minute podcast that was only going to be a half hour podcast we plainly have not lost the ability to waffle that's what we started out doing, and I'm taking a certain amount of pride in the claim that we have never failed to ramble. And so and so we do, and so we shall. I mean, the next episode will see us move into officially our second decade. Okay, that's terrifying. That's just, <laughs> that, that's just really unnerving. <laughs> hey, look, the, the fun thing about the 10 minutes worth episodes, which are a terrible cheat in terms of numerical episodes of the they podcast are, means that we're finally catching up with an average of one of, of one a week or whatever it is, you know, we'll be at okay, episode our, 500 before you know it. We were, our, our average is as of now 40 per year, which is pretty good, which is pretty good. And we actually did that the first few years. We actually probably came close to that anyway. Um, and, and, and then we sort of, uh, trailed off a bit and, uh, and, and, and now we're back, but the, the 10 minute things are just, I don't know what our, our listeners think, but for me, they're just so much fun that I keep wanting to. Yeah, we'll do more. more people. Did one today. I'll do another one in a couple of days. Yep. Um, and I'd also say, I mean, sometimes I think that we're inflicting our rambling on the world, but I have to say you have to subscribe. So it's uh-huh. a little bit of a self-inflicted wound. Uh, I don't encourage you to, dis- to to unsubscribe, though. Please stay with us if you've been with us. We genuinely value every, all, all our listeners. And, you know, not that we did this in the past, but if you want to go to your favorite podcast listening service and rate us with, you know, 32 stars or something like that, consider doing that because we're going to keep on swinging. We'll, 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 we'll be up for the seven o'clock and in the morning, uh, Hugo ceremony, Gary, come, uh, J- July. Oh, it'll be like 4 p.m. for me or something. I, I know. I'm not seven sure. o'clock in the morning, <laughs> Gary, seven o'clock in the morning. Do you, know, do you know how many cocktails I drink at seven o'clock in the morning, Gary? None. I'd make an exception for this if I were you. I think yeah. the other thing we should we should reassure we, we we should reassure the six or seven remaining listeners to this particular episode that that these full episodes of Cood Street with guests with uh, with thoughts with major issues uh, will continue on our biweekly basis as they've always been. In other words, because I've, I've gotten emails about this, I'm sure you have too. No, the ten minute discussions are not replacing these. Because, for one, I have far too much fun talking to you, Jonathan, yeah. Yeah. despite our other friends. Yeah. Look, the 10 minutes things are great, but they are a finite thing. They will go away at some as, point. As soon, in the... as, as soon as coronavirus does. <laughs> well, maybe not oh, even I... that long, Gary. I reckon it's going to be around <laughs> for a while. I reckon, I reckon sort of somewhere in the, around the 50 episode mark, we'll have a chat and, you know, I can't see going beyond the 100. That seems like a bit much. No, but they're an interesting getting... document of the time. But I, I think. keep thinking of more people I want to talk to. Well, oh, I well. talk to them. All I just right. talked to Scott Lynch and Elizabeth Bear, which was great. I talked this morning to E. Lily Yu, and that See? was terrific as well. So, so we, we will keep going, and there's all those people that we haven't spoken to yet. Possibly you who's listening right now. So, you know, we will, we will continue on. And yes, you're right. I think we, we need to recalibrate our footing on the full length episodes a little bit. I think we haven't, like, things have been thrown off. Like, we did a couple of normal episodes with, well, we with Nora Jemison and Ken Lowe. And then we've right. been kind of like all over the shop a little bit. 
Well, we we, we, we'll we have a firm we have a firm plan sometime in the fall for doing one with Stan Robinson about the ministry for the future. We ought to make plans that are somewhere between now and October, though. <laughs> well, it's not like we're going anywhere, Gary. Well, that's true. We could do this forever. Oh no. <laughs> okay. Well, on that cheery note, until next week or next time, it's been a pleasure. And this has been until then, good the Cood Street podcast. <laughs>